Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX World, the first show of 2019. Happy New Year to you and... I don't know, whoever you with. You're probably going to be on your own at the moment, I would imagine. Most people listen to these podcasts with headphones on. But if there is anyone else with you, wish them Happy New Year from me. This episode of VUX World is brought to you by the marvellous Botmock. If you're still writing code just to get a design to test and you're spending all of your time nestled in code or you're spending time using bits of paper and post-it notes and flowcharts and all of these different kind of ways that, that you use just to get ideas down and, and and to test some stuff, then you should be checking out Botmock. Botmock is a fantastic tool uh, and companies of all sizes are using it. You can design all of your Alexa skills within here. You can collaborate with your whole team. You can test it. You can uh, you know, take it from design right the way through to content to develop a handover all in one application. It will save you a ton of time, a ton of effort. If you use a tool like Botmock, then you can prototype and you can build out uh, iteratively and easily and seamlessly and you can collaborate with your team as i said all within one platform it is an epic epic uh, platform do check it out and if you do go to botmock.com slash vux world you can try it out for free that's b-o-t-m-o-c-k.com slash v-u-x world thank you to everybody at botmock for sponsoring this episode of vux world this is the first episode of 2019, and I'm super excited for a big year for VUX World this year. Last year was absolutely immense. I don't know, well, I was going to say I don't know how we can top it, but I'm pretty confident that we can do because it's always heading in the right direction. We're growing every month. And thank you all for listening all the way throughout 2018. And 2019, as I said, is going to be a massive year. We've got far more content coming your way. Hopefully, we're going to be getting more frequent podcasts. The, the, the January already is completely stacked. February is getting booked up. We've got a lot of workshops in the pipeline, a lot of events and a lot of shows that we're going to be doing uh, over the next few months. So it's shaping up to be a really, really exciting year. Can't wait to meet more of you and to share, you know, speaking with, with all of these industry experts and sharing their knowledge with you and, and helping you on your journey in 2019. It's going to be absolutely immense. And let's get the show on the road. Our guest today, Chris Geeson, he is the principal UX researcher at AnswerLab. AnswerLab work with, you know, massive, massive clients. And Chris is going to tell us a lot more about that. But things, you know, places like Google, Facebook, eBay, you know, Fortune 100, massive global clients. And they purely focus on user research and user experience research and that's what Chris does. Chris is the uh, he heads up the whole user research uh, team over at AnswerLab and we're going to be talking today all about user research. We've mentioned user research in the past on the podcast. We've covered things like usability testing. We've done a little bit on idea generation with Ben Sauer um, and we've touched on it here and there as well with Konstantin Samoylov and Adam Banks. But today we're going to get real deep into it. We're going to be talking to Chris. He's got bags of, of experience in, in, in user, user experience research. And we're going to be talking all about the different types of UX research that you can do at what stage in the projects uh, in a voice project would you do this kind of research, what type of research works well for idea generation versus evaluating a solution and we're going to be getting, and it's not just one for the Fortune 100, Chris might work with Fortune 100 companies but the whole point of this is is for anybody to be able to take on these practices and to start trying it out themselves so I'm hoping that by the end of this episode you'll be able to gather enough information to do some exploratory research and some idea generative uh, research before you can start, or before you do start uh, creating your next 
next voice experience and also to be able to take some of the uh, evaluative research practices and try those out as well because as Chris mentions in this podcast any UX research is better than no research whatsoever and we have a bit of a discussion about the kind of skill sets and and, and who can do it and essentially anyone can do it really Uh, to do it really really well for the big companies you might need you know a hell of a lot more experience and skills but anyone can do it if you just give it a go so ladies and gentlemen without further ado this is VUX World Cool. Well, here we go then. A new year, a new podcast episode kicking off the year and Merry New Year, uh, Dustin. Yeah, to you as well, Kane. Congratulations on, on uh, I don't know if everyone knows if you want everyone to know, but Kane is now officially off the market. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am. I got married and uh, had a honeymoon. And Dustin, while all that was going on, you caught the flu. I did catch the flu. I did. I got to catch up on Mad Men, though. And so it, would, it worked out. It worked out. <laughs> Wicked. So over the last year, obviously we've launched VUX World. It's been going incredibly, incredibly well. Couldn't have wished for a better year than last year. We had a massively hectic year. We had. Uh, we moved house. We got a dog. We had a baby. We got married, uh, and and here we are, launched for UX World. And our guest today, Chris Geeson, you've kind of been through some similar things as well. You've you've got married, you're expecting a baby, and you're doing extremely well over at Answer Labs. Been a hell of a lot going on for you last year as well, Chris. It's been a hell of a year, Kane. Yeah, we've uh, yeah, it's it's the people at work have been calling it the year of Chris, uh, which is a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> But, um, yeah, it's just been ridiculous. I was promoted uh, twice in the last year, married the woman that I love, and found out shortly thereafter that she was pregnant. So it's wow. been been a big year. Nice. Well, congratulations yeah. on it all. And you're a long-time listener of the podcast as well, so I'm absolutely I, buzzing yeah. to have you on for the first episode of the new year. Thank you very much for coming on. No, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled uh, to contribute in some way to this. As you know, I've been listening to VUX World for as long as you've been out, so uh, I'm thrilled to have an opportunity to be a part of it, man. Nice. Well, no pressure for us, Dustin. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. So you've you've been promoted twice in the last year. So are you are you now principal UX researcher, or have you been promoted again beyond that? That, that was my most recent. So right. yeah, I am. I uh, as of October was promoted to principal UX researcher with a focus on emerging technologies. Wicked, and that's at Answer Lab. Yes. And tell us a little bit then about because so this episode, boys and girls, I, I mentioned in the intro, which I'm going to record afterwards, so you won't have heard this, gents. <laughs> but we're going to be talking all about UX research today and and focusing that specifically around voice. Um, we've kind of touched on elements of this throughout previous podcasts and Chris we've kind of had a few conversations over the course of last year about about some of these conversations and stuff but I think today is going to be an episode really where we kind of bring it all together I suppose so tell us a little bit about about your role as principal UX researcher at Answer Lab and tell us a little bit about Answer Lab as well and, and, and what you know what your role is and what Answer Lab does. Yeah so um, as a UX researcher I'm leading UX research projects Um, I am also as a principal researcher, um, so I kind of am involved in in any of the research that we're doing, 
uh, on emerging technologies, especially around voice and AI, because that's been our focus for a little while now. Uh, I'm getting the research out or just staying abreast of what's going on uh, at Answer Lab. And we'll talk more about what UX research is so that you get a little bit more of a picture of what it is exactly I do. Um, and Answer Lab is an agency uh, that just does UX research. Um, you know, the motto experiences people. Uh, it was founded about 15 years ago by Amy Buckner Chowdhury, who um, saw a need for qualitative and quantitative. We work um, almost exclusively with Fortune 100 companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, eBay, Schwab, etc. Um, we have offices in San Francisco and New York, but uh, I think the majority of our employees are actually remote, scattered around the U.S. Most of our research, um, the companies we work with are based in the U.S., but we also have, do a fair amount of international research as well. I, I think it was like 22 countries that we did research in last year. Um, so that's a little bit about Answer Lab. Cool. And so Answer Lab focuses purely on doing user research. So what has taken it and you down this path of, of voice? Where did all of this come from for you? Yeah, well, so Amy and I have been talking about voice and emerging technology since I joined two and a half years ago, um, just because I, I think it is, like all of these emerging technologies I find fascinating, whether it's um, voice or AR or wearables, because it's moving people away from kind of staring at a screen. And that brings up all these really interesting kind of contextual issues, and it makes UX research that much more, in my mind, that much more important. Um, and then at CES, I think, I guess it was 2017, at the beginning of, of 2017, Amy came back and she was like, you're absolutely, you know, this is it. The future is voice and AI. We need to lead in this space if we want to shape the future. And so for the past two years, that's been really a core focus at Answer Lab. We, the majority of our work is still, of course, graphic user interfaces, but we've really been focusing on doing more work in these emerging spaces. And so you haven't been working on voice this whole time. It sounds like you had to convince your, you had to convince Answer Lab that voice was something to really focus on. Uh, how, how did you go about doing that? What, like what, what switched to, uh, uh, we're not sure this is the future to, hey, this is something we really need to lead on. Yeah, well, I mean, a couple things. One is that we actually had done a couple of voice projects before that and had done quite a few if we broaden it to conversational interfaces. Chatbots, of course, were more the rage, you know, three, four years ago than they are now. But, you know, they're, they're actually getting significantly better now. And so we'd done a fair amount of chatbot research as well. So we'd had exposure in that space. Um, but I think really... Two, two, there were two pieces. One is that Answer Lab has grown just exponentially, and that growth allowed us to then kind of invest more in you know shaping our direction and and you know focusing on certain things and sort of certain things, and then some of it um, you know again was just uh, I, I don't I shouldn't take credit for convincing Amy of anything necessarily. Um, I think that. You know, I just kept making the case that this is an entirely new interaction mode and it is 
worth us getting ahead of the curve and being aware on this, aware of this. And of course, the stats we kept seeing of adoption was just incredibly fast. Um, and it just seemed telling. But frankly, I think going to CES in, in 2017 and seeing all of the products and the presentations just made it clear that like this is this is where we're at. Mm. And CES, it's it's done this week actually, isn't it? CES, I think the, for this year, yeah, it's yeah. Out, yeah. Last year, I remember the whole thing. I, I don't know, not overly familiar with what was going on in 2017, but I know last year was just mental. Like the whole thing was just flooded, full of voice, uh, voice first stuff, and it's, it, obviously I'm, I'm expecting fairly similar stuff this year as well. Um, the kind of stuff that you're doing then with, with Ansalab, you mentioned that you work with Fortune 100 companies and the Googles and Ebays and stuff like that. Is that the same level of client that you're working with in the voice space? Because you said you're still doing a lot of kind of gooey stuff and, and, and voice isn't the whole picture. Is that still the same level of client you're working with in the voice space or are you kind of, you know, essentially just trying to learn as much as you can with, with any client who will pay you essentially? <laughs> well, <coughs> it's a great question. So, in terms of the actual client work, it is um, it is still working with those Fortune 100 companies, and of course, you know, if, if we're working with Google, Amazon, um, you know, companies like that, Facebook, like not surprisingly, companies are um, doing work in the voice space, uh, and a lot of our other clients, you know, other Fortune 100 companies are are absolutely kind of saying we see this coming what is it? Or we see this coming and we have some ideas and we want to see whether those, those ideas actually work. Um, we also, one of the other things that is, that has been awesome about our growth is that we've actually also been able to fund our own studies so that we don't just have to do client studies. And so as well, they don't necessarily have to be clients. Okay. So we'll jump into, um, some of those studies that that you've kind of been doing. I know that you've got, I mean, there's countless blog posts that I've noticed. I, 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 when we first kind of got together and we first kind of spoke a few months back, um, I was reading a few of the posts that you'd written on the Answer Lab website and I went to the day just to kind of, you know, refresh myself on what's been going on recently. And there's now quite a, a substantial amount of uh, content over there, specifically looking at voice uh, user interfaces and, and, and user research in the context of voice. So it sounds as though you've been doing a, a hell of a lot over the back end of last year. So we'll get into maybe some examples of the studies that you've done and, and the work that you've been doing with Answer Lab, uh, and then we'll get into some of the, the UX research principles and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, before we do that, we've we've had user research discussions in the past, but we've kind of just dove straight in. So one of the first episodes is about usability testing. We spoke to Konstantin uh, Samoylov and Adam Banks, uh, ex-Google, uh, about, and we've touched on user research here and there, but we didn't ever really just set the stall out and start from the very beginning. And since then, the podcast's obviously grown. There's a lot more people listening to it, a lot, a lot of different people listening to it as well, brands, developers, and designers. So let's just set the stall out first of all, Chris, and tell us what user research even is as a, as a, as a thing from the very beginning. What, how would you define user research in the first place? At, at its highest level, the definition that finally was able to get my mom to understand what it is that I do, which is always a good kind of rubric for whether you're making sense, um, is that I talk to people about how they use technology so technology can be better designed. At its highest level, that's, that's what it is. Um, you know, everybody in working in tech frequently talks about user experience and user experience research 
is just researching what users experience actually is. Um, it's a bunch of different methods that are used to understand people's uh, motivations and behaviors. Um, it's not marketing research. Marketing research tends to be more attitudinal and aspirational. It's kind of what do people want? What are they willing to pay? What do we need to do in order to get them to kind of take action and, and spend money? Um, user research is more kind of what are people's actual behaviors, motivations, challenges, and then how can we, you know, design for that? Does that help? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I suppose one of the difficulties, and maybe we'll, we'll kind of, maybe we'll kind of circle back around to this, but one of the difficulties perhaps is that if you are trying to, un so if you're trying to understand user behavior, then there needs to be um, something for them to behave around, let's say, right? So if you want to understand how people are using smartphones, then you need to have smartphones and people that are capable of using smartphones, etc. With voice being relatively sort of new, are you looking at user research from the, from the perspective of how are people that use, let's say, smart speakers or voice assistants on mobiles, are you looking at it from the perspective of the people that are using them now, how are they using them now? Or are you looking at it from the perspective of from... You know, what do we need to do to get people to use it? Or are you looking at what are people using and how are they using it now? Yeah, it's a great question. So actually, user research, there are kind of a couple of different buckets that, that you can split UX research into. Um, one being generative and one being evaluative. And so generative research is around generating ideas and, and identifying strategies. What, what do we need to build? And evaluative is around evaluating how things work. The other piece is quant versus qual. And so, of course, quant is things like um, surveys. And, um, you know, analytics packages, for example, are also ways of doing quant UX research. The qualitative side is more talking to people and observing people. So we do both. The majority of our work, the majority of people's awareness of UX research um, and the majority of what's been talked about, you know, on uh, the UX world and elsewhere tends to be around testing, which is evaluative. So it's, you know, either we have something out in the world or we've developed a prototype and we want to evaluate how this actually works. Is, is it usable? Is it helpful? You know, what do people think of it? Um, and, but there is also a whole host of generative research techniques that can be used to, that don't even require people to interact with the technology. It's more just, again, understanding what challenge, what are people trying to do in their lives? What are their challenges? What are they running into? And then identifying where are their opportunities for us to create a solution? And so it, that's the part that's less well understood that actually I would say uh, has much more value, certainly from a strategic perspective. Um, and actually just not that long ago, I guess at this point it was actually a couple months ago, but uh, Ben Sauer tweeted something uh, about how he was working with a client and the, the best use case that came out came out through user research and it wasn't obvious. And he said, you know, do your homework people. And so I think that's a piece that, that doesn't get talked about enough is that there is uh, you know, a, a host of different techniques that we can use 
to identify, to go into situations and uh, see, you know, what, what is the problem so that we can then start to think of uh, solutions. And what are some of those generative techniques? Um, so a lot of them draw from kind of anthropology in a way, cultural anthropology, especially um, ethnography you may hear used, um, contextual inquiry you may hear used. Um, so ethnography is basically kind of going into people's environment, observing how they behave, maybe asking some questions and getting a real understanding of people's lives outside of a lab. You know, a lot of the work that we do in evaluative research where we're testing things, we're bringing people into a lab um, or, you know, they're doing it on remotely on their computers or whatever. In this case, we're going into people's actual environment and learning how does this technology integrate with their lives or what, what are they doing in their homes or places of work or wherever that, you know, where there's an opportunity. Contextual inquiry is that same thing, but with kind of less of a, an observational category. It's, it's more interviewing somebody in the environment. And I'm grossly oversimplifying here and anthropologists will hate me, but that's <laughs> the core of it. Diary studies are another way that we, you know, another technique that we use in that space, and they are what they sound like, we basically ask people to keep a diary. Um, and we may give them some assignments, and that allows us to kind of do longitudinal work so we can understand use over time. Um, and one of the interesting things that we've been using more in that space is video diaries. So that in that case, we're actually able to give people assignments uh, and observe them, you know, it's especially helpful with voice. We can watch them complete the assignment. We can ask them questions and we can see how things change over time. So let's just recap on that then. So we've got, you've got in-home contextual studies. Is that right? So that's where you'd be in someone's environment where they're currently used. That all sounds a little bit kind of Louis Theroux. Is that kind of is is it is it as form is it a formal thing or is that just you casually around for a cup of tea and you'll just have a chat and watch them use an echo or something like that? How does all that sort of how does that work? There it is less structured than a lot of the work that we do in labs, but I assure you that um, neither our clients nor our participants necessarily want me to just pop in for some tea and. Uh, <laughs> and chat. Uh, so we do, you know, certainly have objectives. We do have some, uh, you know, key questions or hypotheses uh, where we want to go into people's homes and, and kind of understand it. it. It Again, ethnography is a little bit more early stage and you're frequently just trying to understand, you know, what are people doing in their homes around this particular activity or interest and then, you know, what do we see kind of them, what are the opportunities? What challenges do they run into? What do they really enjoy about it? You know, like there are all these services, you know, that are popping up to make cooking easier. Some people love cooking. And for some people, it brings the family together. There are cultural traditions around it. And so ethnography can point out like, hey, actually, you know, there's, there may be some people who want, you know, a robot to cook them dinner. But there are a lot of people for whom that's important family time or, you know, a connection to their culture and their lineage. And so that's not necessarily all that interesting. It's, it's, it helps to really understand meaning and how people interact with one another and potentially with technology. Contextual inquiry is even more focused. And it's where you're really going in and, and essentially doing an interview. 
but you're doing it in somebody's living room or, or their place of work. Okay, so when you say more focused, is that you're going in with a specific agenda, with a specific specific set of questions that you want to get the answers to, as opposed to kind of either generally observing or probing around a, a certain use case? Yes, exactly. It's not okay. a script per se. You want the conversation to go where it goes, but um, contextual inquiry tends to be more focused on you know looking at a specific task or you know specific objectives. Mm. And then, how do, how will you take that and generate? So you mentioned that we were talking about this as being a generative thing. So this kind of stuff can generate either ideas or can generate new use cases. How do you go about spotting those ideas and those use cases from these uh, in-home kind of interviews or contextual inquiries? How how do you go about actually drawing out? those ideas from from those things yeah i mean that is um that is the real heavy work of good ux researchers is being able to take a lot especially on the qual side especially taking a lot of kind of muddy data and figuring out you know what's there and so often you know taking good notes is key um, affinity diagrams is key because it allows you to kind of identify trends or themes that seem to keep recurring across participants. Um, and then you are able to distill that down to say, you know, this is something that we've, that we've seen across a number of different people. And here are some of the things we think that could address it. And at that point, you want to be working closely with designers and product managers at larger companies in order to say this is, um, you know, here are the opportunities. So, um, you know, an, an example of something um, from research that I did on smart, speaker, smart speakers in people's homes is um, we noticed that, and that this comes out in, um, in some of the surveys that I've seen, but surveys are better at kind of saying what, you know, they're good at quantifying things. They're good at giving you a sense of scope. They're not typically as good at giving you a sense of why. So what's going on in this space? And, um, you know, people using it in their living rooms. One of the things that became clear is that people in their living rooms um, are typically, inter when they have a smart speaker in their living room, which is the primary place where you find it, um, they're interacting with it as a family. And so not just necessarily all playing games, but the parents might be there, uh, reading or, you know, looking at their phones and they've got music in the background, kids are doing their homework and the kids are asking the device questions about their homework. The parents are asking it trivia, you know, or things that they've come across in their reading, et cetera. In people's kitchens, it is less frequently or tend to be much more focused. In the living room, people are leaning back. They're kind of a more casual situation. They tend to be more patient. They tend to be uh, more accepting of longer answers in the kitchen. People are focused on a task. And so if, if it's not playing music or podcasts, when people are speaking to their device in the kitchen, they're looking for more succinct kind of experiences. So those are some of the design pieces that come out of it in terms of actual strategy. Um, that that that's the real work of, of good UX researchers is identifying, you know, this is, this is something that people are running into, um, you know, that people are having challenges with on a regular basis. And this is something that, you know, we really think voice could uh, address your, your conversation with 
uh, on the last podcast with Rebecca Evanhoe, I thought was awesome because you were talking about the uh, Amazon clock. And I think Amazon did an excellent job there of paying attention to how people actually use and set timers. And actually, yeah, people glancing at a clock to see where your timer is requires less than speaking to it. But setting that timer is easier to do with voice. So it's actually a really interesting use that they figured out, well, setting timers with voice is easier, but finding out where your timer is, is easier visually. And so those are the kinds of things that I think tend to come up when you are actually observing people and not simply presenting them with something to respond to. And is this, is that what Amazon, I don't know if you know this or not, but if not, then possibly we can discuss whether we think this is the case, but do you think that's what Amazon are actually doing then is they're not just, you know, these, these, the microwave and the, the, all of these devices that they released last year, they're not actually just things that they're throwing against the wall. You think, do you, or do you think, I don't want to lead you, but do you think that they have researchers dotting around doing this kind of research to try and come up with these products? Or, or do you think it's more of a, you know, this would be a good idea. That'd be a good idea. Let's shove it in a microwave. Yeah. I mean, Amazon does a lot of UX research and they do a fair amount with us and NDAs would preclude me from talking about some specifics, but um, my presumption is that they are, you know, doing a lot of UX research. Most of the companies that we work with have, um, you know, significant in-house resources around UX research. They're coming to us for a couple of reasons. Um, sometimes they just have more they, that they can do. Sometimes they want fresh eyes or they want someone who's neutral and objective and isn't so invested in kind of the product or the politics of their organization that they need a third party. Sometimes it's logistical. Um, you know, we had one study where this one was actually on AR, but they wanted to do hundreds of interviews in a month and they just couldn't scale that kind of thing. They didn't have a research organization that could flex in that way we did and so we were able to do it um or they're you know, they have a challenging recruiter they're looking to do stuff internationally so all of these you know big fortune 100 companies are doing ux research they're just also using uh answer lab in order to supplement that in various ways so my presumption is absolutely that um amazon is doing uh ux research and i presume that they're doing some of this generative stuff to identify what are the strategy opportunities and then how does it come in? Because a generative is, it sounds like it's thinking of things that users maybe don't even know that they need yet. Uh, and, and looking at their habits and coming up with those. Whereas you also have the, the UX research, which is often, uh, you know, seeing them interact with it. And, and sometimes this is going to be a new product, a new, you know, app or new interaction that they don't have experience with. And it can be a success or it can be the echo look. So how do you how do you balance that uh, sort of where users don't maybe even can visualize what they're looking for and it's going to be something brand new? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it um, it all goes back to the the uh, organization or the person who's trying to create this thing, where they are in the process, and and what they're looking to learn. Um, but you absolutely hit on it, and this is one of the reasons why I think generative research. Um, like I, what I was talking about, those techniques, I think people assume that UX research is 
just on the evaluative or just on the testing side because they always throw out these things like, you know, Henry Ford, which I believe is an apocryphal quote, but people throw it out all the time. If I asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. And Steve Jobs saying, essentially, people don't know what they want until I put it in front of them. But generative research isn't about asking people what they want. If you ask people what they want, you know, they are likely to say they want a faster horse. But if you observe people, you talk about people's travel behavior, you ask them about what kind of challenges you, they run into, um, then you tend to identify you know, what people's motivations are and the challenges that they're facing so that you can actually you know, come up with something that's going to address uh, that, those set of challenges in a way that's going to help them fulfill their goals. Does that, does that get it, Jess? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And we also, so changing tack just a little bit, we've talked about this earlier. We're talking so far about sort of general UX research. How does this or does this differ at all for voice-specific uh, UX research? So uh, graphic user interface research and voice, it's, it, it is um, a very big question. Um, there are a lot, of, I mean, I, I was just at, um, last month, um, a little get together with some of the best VUI designers kind of in the world, people who've been doing it for decades. Um, and this very question came up and the difference between UX research for research for VUIs, uh, it's a big question. And my big answer is it's not different. <laughs> Um, and you built us up there, Chris. <laughs> well, let, 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 I'll explain a little bit. The, the objectives and techniques don't change. It's not like we're doing brand new things. It's the same kind of stuff where we're looking to understand what are people's motivations, their challenges, their behavior. All of, none of that changes. The, there are some tweaks to how we do it. Because, for example, when I'm doing uh, evaluative research and, I, and I'm you know, going through a voice prototype with somebody or, or testing a voice experience, when I'm doing it with an app, I can say, think aloud as you go through the checkout process. And I can interrupt them and ask questions as they go. You know, Tell me more about this aspect of it. Obviously, with voice, you can't do that. So it requires slightly different um, approaches to it in that you can't inter, inter, um, interrupt people. You have to pay very close attention to what people are doing and save your questions for the end. And so in that case, it may be, you know, when, um, you know, Siri said this, I noticed a little bit of a smile on your face. What was that about? And you need to pay close enough attention that if they don't remember, you can describe the interaction and the point of that interaction where they had a little bit of a smile on their face. Um, so that changes. Um, there are things like the number of participants that you should speak with that may change. And, and there's some debate around this. My contention is that whereas with GUIs, you can interview, you know, somewhere around five to eight people, you start to see certain trends develop and you see if a GUI is running into problems and you see certain patterns. Like a lot of people are struggling with this aspect of it with voice. My belief is that we need larger sample sizes because there aren't those, um, what a lot of my field call affordances, there aren't clear visual signifiers. So if somebody's looking at a web page, there are a discrete number of things that you can click on. There are only so many things that people could take action on and have trouble with. 
With voice, it's a lot more wide open. So having more participants helps to uh, you know, accommodate the fact that there are a lot more directions that people could take with it. Um, the biggest piece, I think, that changes when we talk about um, UX research for voice is that it is much more contextual. That when we're talking about GUIs, you can do that in a lab. I mean, do, if you're looking at a web page, people are looking at that on their laptop. You can do that in a lab. With mobile phones, to a certain extent, that's true. I wish mobile moved the UX research practice more than it has. But the fact is that now that we've moved to things like voice and wearables, people are doing it in an environment. And that environment matters more. And they're doing it in conjunction with other pieces of technology. And that whole, like, the ecosystem in which people are operating and the context physically in which they're operating now is much more important. And so with UX research, the, the change that I think is most significant in moving to voice is that there is this contextual piece and it becomes that much more important to do the research in people's environments and with other technology at play, not just looking at one app uninterrupted in a lab setting. So that was a little bit of a ramble, but I, I, I hope it got at your question. Yeah, it's good. Um, when you're, let's just take it back a step to when you're doing the um, the testing side of things, and you, you mentioned there that that you tend to need a, a bigger sample size. If you increase the sample size, do you tend to? Because I've done kind of usability testing on on plenty of websites, and you do see within the first five participants that there is big things that happen for more or less everyone, isn't there? You can tell that this thing isn't working because it's happened for you know six out of eight people, or and it's it's really obvious. Quite some things are really obvious straight away. With voice, um, and you're saying you need a bigger sample size, but I, I do you notice the same big mistakes happen? Or is it a case of everyone uses it so differently that you just end up with a load of things that you need to fix? No, there, there absolutely are um, some big mistakes that are consistently made. And this was one of the things that um, I wrote up in the smart speaker report that we did uh, a little over a year ago. And so just a little bit about that, because I think it gives a view into how you can approach you know, UX research kind of questions. In this case, it was multi-methodological. We did a survey, we did a short diary study, and then we did contextual inquiry where I went into people's homes and interviewed them and observed them using the devices and then wrote it up into this report, which you referred to is on Answer Lab's website. And there are some very clear um, kind of key principles to keep in mind and big mistakes that are consistently made. Error handling um, is routinely something that people do badly. Um, and, and, you know, it, one of the examples that I use in the report was um, this was a major brand. And they were asking, do you want to place a new order or track your order? And the, the participant said yes. They did, the participant didn't understand it was an either or. They just said yes. And so the device said, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Can, you know, can you say that again? And the participant kept, and they got caught in a loop. Nobody who had designed this, you know, thought through the fact that if somebody gets a question wrong the first time, they may get it wrong consistently. And so you may need to rephrase the question or at least provide them an out 
because you don't want people cycling through, you know, error handling. Um, there are a bunch of, um, you know, kind of key principles that we identified in that report. Setting expectations is absolutely one of them. Um, you know, I called it being a good host because there's both setting expectations when people enter the experience, but there's also giving people, letting people know where they are, you know, during the course of that interaction. If you're having an interaction where people are moving through an experience, people want to know where they are in that. And, you know, like in a checkout screen, you can see across the top, there's a progress bar. We don't have that invoice. And so that's an area that a lot of, um, you know, kind of voice applications, be they skills, actions, whatever, don't do a great job of is setting expectations and then letting people know where they are in the process. Um, capturing utterances is another one, you know, using natural language is challenging. We all, when we're developing these voice applications, we use the language that makes sense to us. And we may even break out a thesaurus and look out some synonyms and then it's a question of putting it out into the world and kind, kind of potentially paying attention to analytics or activity logs to try and you know, shore things up. But that is another area where UX research actually can do a lot of good work in you know, sending, this, this would be an example of something like a diary study where we can send out you know, um, tasks to people, ask them to complete it and identify what are the terms that people are actually using. So there, there are definitely some kind of um, core principles that go wrong all the time. Mm -hmm. It is an emerging technology, but there are definitely uh, some core pieces that we get wrong. And when you're doing this research, we're talking there about the differences between kind of like graphical user experience research versus voice. And when you're working with these clients, are you going into a kind of a, a user research project or UX research project? Are you going into that thinking, out of this, we want to find a use case for voice? Or are you thinking broadly, we just want to investigate this circumstance or this um, you know, behavior and just see what we can get out of it? Are you going in there specifically looking for voice stuff or are you going in there just generally trying to figure out what people's problems are? With client work, we're, we're absolutely focused on what they're trying to learn. So that, you know, that is driving it. And so if they're looking to understand, um, you know, we have an idea, you know, we're a brand that is focused on the kitchen or on food preparation or something like that. And we want to know is, is, you know, what would be most helpful to people when, you know, via voice, when they're doing food preparation in that case, we could go in and just pay attention to how are people cooking, how do they interact with one another, what challenges are they running into, and what opportunities exist for voice. It could also be they say, you know, we, we think we know what people want. We've taken a stab at it, and we want to actually test this device and see, you know, does it actually help people in the way that we think. Hmm. So you're kind of – so most of the time you, you're – you have an end game as such. Certainly the, the clients that are paying us are looking to, I mean, they're not investing that much money without trying to come out of it with some, you know, some business decision to make, even if it's, you know, maybe we, maybe we don't move forward with this, but they're looking to make business decisions and they're investing in getting answers. So that's absolutely, we're, we're very directed in kind of what are they looking to find out from this particular piece? 
Um, and you know, in, in the case of evaluative research, testing, um, user interviews, things like that, we're really looking at you know, what, what problems are people running and it's you know, those usability issues that you've talked about on, on other episodes. The, the, my big piece on this is just that there is in Silicon Valley this kind of, and I, I think Silicon Valley has infected the rest of the world with this thinking, is this kind of test and iterate thinking which is great, except that you're getting people to respond to a specific solution. And so if you were to come to Answer Lab and you say, you know, here's, here's a hammer, we wanna see how people use it. We can optimize and build the best hammer possible. We're not necessarily gonna find out that people really need a screwdriver because we're asking them to use a hammer, so they're gonna just use it. And so we may not end up solving the right problem. And even more dangerous, I think, is when we solve a problem, you know, like the hammer and, and, um, and screwdriver is oversimplistic, but it's not a bad example because in many instances, you could basically use a hammer for what a screwdriver is intended to do. It's gonna solve the problem on some level, but you're also leaving an opportunity open for somebody to come along and say, no, actually, maybe we should develop a screwdriver. <laughs> And here you are with the best hammer on the market. So testing and iterating is critical. It's our bread and butter. It's important, but it also neglects the opportunity to really identify what is the problem we're trying to solve and then testing some concepts around that. You've talked about Wizard of Oz testing on, on the show before, um, and that's a great way kind of in, in the middle when you've just kind of got this concept. You've done generative research, you've got some kind of concept that might solve the issue, and then you want to test that concept, things like Wizard of Oz testing or table reads, um, sample dialogues, those kinds of things can at least give you a sense of, are, are we solving the problem? Is, is the way, is our basic concept on the right track? And then if your concept's right, then test and iterate away. And you, you work with a lot of very large companies, very large brands. What about a smaller company who doesn't have an answer lab behind them? What are, what are the things that are the highest impact that someone who's one, two people can go in and do and, and, and really be able to know if they're building the right thing and know if they're going down the right path? Yeah, it's a hugely important question. I'm really glad you asked it, especially since, you know, what is really exciting about uh, voice is that there are so many uh, startups and hobbyists and entrepreneurs kind of in this space. And, you know, there are so many people that I talk to that are just, you know, they're on their own developing voice apps and they're really enthusiastic about it and they want to do it right. And then they hear me talking and they're like, well, you know, that's great for Google. I, I don't have Google money. Um, you know, when they get big, they should definitely call us. Uh, until they get big, um, there's my favorite book on, on UX research or design research or whatever you want to call it um, is Erica Hall's book, Just Enough Research. Um, and can, you might want to put that in the show notes or you know, people can reach out to me. We can include my contact information. So Just Enough Research 
it's short. It gives a great overview. It's in a very conversational, real person talking to you tone. Um, and it's awesome. And then Steve Portugal has a book called Interviewing Users, which is really important if you're going to talk to people. Because again, you don't want to ask leading questions. You don't want to ask people what they want. You don't want to go into these situations without some, there is skill associated with UX research. I firmly believe that anybody can do it. And so if you're one person, you know, building a voice application, my core message is just get out and talk to people. And you, you just need to buy like a book that's less than $20, I think. And you can at least get some guidance in how do I select those people? What's the right methodology for me to use? And then talk to anybody other than you and your best friends about this idea, because you will find that people are weird and interesting and do things you don't expect. And it is far better to find that out while you're thinking of, you know, what you're going to build than once you've built it. Because if you build something and it doesn't work for people or rubs people the wrong way, they're unlikely to return. And then you've just lost that opportunity. So at, at a core level, I think anybody can do user research. It doesn't need to be expensive. It doesn't need to take forever. And those are the things I always hear. Yet, you know, we don't have that kind of money and time. It depends on what you're trying to do, but there are some really low cost, simple ways of getting out there and just talking to people and interacting with people and observing people with the technology that doesn't take a huge amount of time or a huge budget that really could be quite eye-opening. Mm. It does, It does though, take a certain type of skill set or, or certain type of person, though, does it not? Because I think some people... And when, when from not, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a user researcher, and this is this is why I'm I'm asking the question because I've seen these kind of things happen when when either other people have been doing things or whatever. Is that I've found that some people want to use user research to back up their idea or to validate their idea or their concept or essentially rather than being totally objective and and standing off and just genuinely seeing how people are reacting how people use it it's almost kind of going into it either with an agenda or you mentioned asking things like leading questions so there is a either a particular is there not a particular mindset that you need to have or a particular skill set or personality that makes a good user researcher yeah i mean what i would say is um Anyone can do user research, and if your listeners are building something, I encourage them to try their hand at it. Some interaction with people, actual users, is better than none at all, just straight up. Um, so anyone can do user research in order to do it well, um, in order for it to be something that you enjoy, does take certain um, skills and knowledge. Um, you know, a a fundamental curiosity about people, uh, empathy, a, a patience with people. You know, so those, those kind of attributes are critically important. And then some grounding in, um, you know, th those very issues that I was talking about when it comes to interviewing users. It, UX research draws quite a bit from anthropology and applied psychology. And so there are, you know, there are theoretical and practical underpinnings to it 
that people should learn if they want to really pursue a career in this. But I truly believe that, you know, even a hobbyist who is, you know, just on their own building something that they think could be really cool would benefit from getting out there, figuring out how to talk to a couple people that aren't exactly like them and keeping that in mind as they build what they build. Mm. And so we've got the hobbyists on one side, we've got the kind of smaller companies, independent companies on the other, uh, or, or medium-sized companies, and then we've got the, the large kind of companies. The large companies, as you mentioned earlier on, probably have in-house UX research teams. They might call upon AnswerLab. For the, for, the, for the small to medium-sized companies, if they're either going to try and do it themselves or they're going to try and bring an agency can you just, because we've talked about a lot of different types of user research as we've gone through this kind of episode and we've spoke about diary studies and in-home interviews and evaluative user research. Can you kind of just take us through what would be expected? If, if let's say, for example, we came to Answer Lab and we said, look, we, we've got this project that we want to do. We want to start right at the very, very beginning and we want to go right through from ideation right through to production. What types of user research would you recommend using when as you go through the process? It's, yeah, yeah, it's a great question. It is a challenging question to ask um, just because it, it so depends on the client, uh, what they're looking to learn, their budget, things like that. But, but in an ideal world, um, a client would come to us before they've started to build anything or prototype something. Um, and they're consider, you know, they want a strategy. They want to figure out how can we approach this place I'm also assuming apparently that this hypothetical client has unlimited budget and time, which they never do. Um, but they would come to us and, and I have put together a couple of research plans for companies that follow this rough outline, which is really that there is, um, we start with some generative research and that could be ethnographies or contextual inquiries. More frequently these days, it involves diary studies and video diary studies because I want to get a sense of changes over time and I want to get invited into people's environments. And I said this, you know, fictional client has unlimited budget, but diary studies are nice because, frankly, going into people's homes is expensive. Um, you know, you're, there's travel time between it. If somebody's a no-show, you can't exactly pull somebody out of the waiting room. And diary studies are an inexpensive way of getting some of the same information, especially if you're using video and you can see people use, you know, the devices in their homes or go about completing a certain task or activity that they do on a regular basis that you're trying to design for. So I would start with that generative piece. Um, we would explore what the opportunities are around that place. We would then work with the designers to come up with, you know, what are some potential solutions? What are some concepts here that we could use? And then we would do some of that conceptual testing, uh, which could be kind of table reads. It could be Wizard of Oz stuff. It's, um, you know, it would be an opportunity to kind of say, does this concept address what we were hoping to address? And then I would recommend a couple rounds of lightweight research. Again, it depends a great deal. If, if they have a bunch of different types of users or a bunch of different types of interactions that they're looking to build out and support, we might need a lot of participants. 
but I tend to find that organizations are better off with multiple rounds of small sample sizes than one big round with a ton of people between those rounds. So that, that kind of takes you through how I would approach it from scratch, coming up with the strategy using generative research, testing the concepts and solutions that you've kind of, now that you understand the problem, you've, come, you've got some ideas around what's going to work, getting a sense of whether they actually work, and then testing and iterating you know, through the completion. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, I think that'll help people because you know even even whether you're a hobbyist or whether you're a kind of a, a smaller company or medium-sized company you can at least use this to kind of maybe cherry pick the bits that you can either afford or that you do have time for or it's just nice to have a a full picture of how in an ideal world it, it would all be done because you know it, it just gives people the options doesn't it yeah absolutely there, there are also i mean there are also a lot of freelancers and people out there who do ux research um, you know, that are, that are, um, not supported by an organization like answer lab. Um, you know, they don't have the benefit of that organization around them, but they can also, you know, they're experts in the field. They can do the work, um, and they can typically do it for less money. Um, but I also, you know, certainly encourage your listeners to, if they have questions about that, this, I love this stuff. I like talking about this stuff. I'm happy to answer questions that your listeners have about this. The only expectation I would set is that I am about to have a child. By the time this podcast comes out, my little girl will have entered the world. So my responsiveness might not be great. Um, but I love this stuff and would love to answer questions that people have about it. I can tell you now that your response will be next to zero if it's anything like me. <laughs> it wipes you out for a good couple of months. Yeah. <laughs> but but nevertheless, share with us how people can can reach you and contact you and how can they get in touch with Answer Lab as well and, and, and follow what's going on over there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, so on the Answer Lab side, it's just answerlab.com. If you want to look up some of the research that I referred to, I mentioned a bunch of research I did. My colleague, Lynn, did a bunch of research recently on conversational interfaces where she was looking at both text and voice. And that is on the website as well, which is specifically under answerlab.com slash insights. Um, So there's a lot of cool stuff there. For me on Twitter, I'm at Chris Geeson, Chris, C-H-R-I-S, Geeson, G-E-I-S-O-N. Um, and people can certainly reach out to me on LinkedIn as well, but I don't accept connection requests from people who don't include a personal message because I actually want to have a network where I can help people. And, you know, I'm not trying to grab followers on LinkedIn. Um, so people can get at me. Probably the best way is through Twitter. Cool. And we'll put all them links in the show notes and the links to those reports, as well as the two books, Just Enough Research and Interviewing Users. Chris, this has been absolutely amazing. Before you go, I can't let you leave without asking you what your favorite Wu-Tang Clan song is. Oh, shit. Um, <laughs> that is my favorite Wu-Tang song. Um, I thought we were going to go album. Um well, do do album and then pick a song from the album if you want. Actually, I'll just off their first album, "Protect Your Neck." I think has to be it. It's it was like their first single. It was crazy. It was nine different Wu Tang members. Uh, there was no chorus. 
they just went one after another and it was so gritty and raw um that's i'm gonna have to go with protect your neck as being uh, my favorite wu-tang song and i actually just bought a bib for our little one that has a wu-tang symbol on it and it says protect your neck <laughs> i saw that that's why i asked i also saw you post with the uh, the wu-tang christmas jump yes the method man christmas yeah jumper. my wife gave me that uh when we were dating last year and so i married her classic <laughs> as you would do as you would do yeah protection neck was one of the ones that had just come out of the gate it was like one of the first kind of like big rap groups like as in like lots of numbers you know nine members or whatever um and it was just like shook the world didn't it, it? people didn't know what the hell to make of it it was yeah. it was a brand new thing Dustin, are you a Wu-Tang fan or not? I can't say I am. If you want to talk about Japanese shoegaze, then I'm all about it. I might have to set up the conversation. Well, Chris, this has been absolutely immense. Thank you so much for joining us for the first episode of 2019. And all the best, seriously, all the best. And congratulations and good luck with everything baby-wise. It's going to be an absolutely immense time. So best Thank of luck. Thank you so much. It's been a true pleasure. Kane and Dustin, thanks a lot, guys. That was Chris Geeson. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining us, especially given the timing with your daughter being born literally tomorrow. It is massively, massively appreciated. Such an interesting podcast episode that really, really enjoyed picking your brains about all things UX research. Covered a lot of stuff that we haven't covered before, which I thought we would, well, I knew we would do, and we've kind of, I think we've kind of managed to bring all of the episodes in the past that have touched on user research all together under one umbrella so we've, we've talked about things that that we haven't spoken about before like diary studies and uh, video diary studies especially certainly the uh, ethnographic was it Ethno- ethnography research um, <laughs> I'll get there uh, in the home you know watching people in the home around a certain uh, use case and around a certain um, circumstance is really interesting as well as as the the interviews i know that you mentioned it's quite expensive but i can i think that that's probably where you're going to get a whole load of value from the research that i've done in the past on on various digital projects and stuff like that speaking with users and having a dialogue with users is absolutely critical because as chris said you uncover things that you wouldn't have even thought about you know you wouldn't have even imagined that there was a problem or things that are hidden underneath the surface you know either problems with a product or a service or um you know a particular use case or something circumstance things that are completely hidden out of the way that you will never ever find unless you go and actually speak to somebody or observe people in in their environment so chris absolutely really really appreciate you joining us and thank you as always dustin for for co-hosting um and yeah guys and girls check out uh, chris geeson on twitter and check out answer lab the as i said the links all will be in the show notes to their research and also to those books that chris recommended as well so do check it out and do give it a go i think chris is right when he's saying that any user research is better than no user research because you can learn very very quickly if you just put something in front of someone or just speak to someone in general before you even you know put pen to paper or or uh, finger to keypad should we say uh, so yeah thank you very much for joining us and boys and girls happy 2019 thank you so much for joining us again and this is going to be a mental mental ride until next time see you later